0: Hello and welcome to the ToxPod. I'm Tim Scott. And I'm Peter Stockham. And if you want to find out all about the latest happenings in forensic toxicology, head over to tf.org. See the latest profile on an African toxicologist. Heading towards the meeting in Cape Town early next year is when it's scheduled for. But on today's episode, we're going to ask... An interesting question. Are toxicologists too sensitive? Mm. So
1: what do we mean by that, Tim? It's a pretty ambiguous title. Probably just engineered to lure people
0: in, really. Well, yeah, of course. You need a catchy title. That's the first lesson they teach you in podcast school.
1: But we're really talking about the instrumentation we use, and it's become more and more sensitive, and it's had to become more and more sensitive, but there's still lots of other drugs we have to look at which don't require that sensitivity.
0: Yeah, the number of new drugs that are coming out every year, not just uh, NPS, prescription drugs as well, which are more potent and so they require really sensitive methods. But as you say, there's still a lot of drugs which aren't particularly low dose and we have to still look for those. Often people are looking for them in the same methods. And having such sensitive instrumentation can actually cause some problems, even though it's it's needed, but it can cause some problems in the lab.
1: In the good old days, there weren't really that many drugs to look for. We had heroin, morphine, some Methamphet, all reasonable sort of concentrations, and a lot of the pharmaceuticals are reasonable concentrations too. So, morphine would have been, you know, looking at 0.2 micrograms per mil or something. But now we have to detect new opioid agonists down to 0.2 nanograms per mil. That's like a factor of 1,000 lower.
0: Yeah, and it's not just different drugs at different doses, it's also new matrices which are being analysed more and more now where you would need to look at a really wide range of a particular drug. So something like hair or oral fluid, you can get really, really high concentrations of drugs in those. And yet the cutoffs may be quite low for some of them. And so you have to sort of start really low, but go really high on your instruments. Ideally in the same run, that would be the most efficient way to do it.
1: Yeah, of course, you have to do that in the same run. I mean, it'd be very hard to do them in separate runs, separate the high ones from the low ones, or the negatives from the positives. You just can't do that. Yeah, oral fluid in particular can have very high concentrations, can't it? Because often if the drug's taken, if the drug's smoked, then you have a lot of drug in the oral cavity.
0: And of course, some drugs are just naturally higher in some of these things, like hair and oral fluid. Some drugs partition more into those than others. And so it's a little bit dose independent in that sense. You just get high concentrations of particular drugs.
1: Yeah, even if it's not from external contamination. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think hair is interesting because someone pointed out to me once that relative to the segment, that the drug is in in hair, it is actually a high concentration because it might only be in like the 10th of a millimeter that you might have a hair, a drug in a hair. So in that tiny little segment, it's actually quite concentrated, but that's a story for another day.
0: So some of the issues that it can cause in your methods are qualitative and some of them are quantitative. So let's talk about the qualitative aspects first. Some drugs, of course, we don't have a lot of information about their expected concentrations in whatever matrix we're testing, especially new drugs. So labs might tend to set their limits of reporting based on their method, LODs, rather than being guided by some you know, international standard or guideline or even by the interpretation of that level because you might not even know what does that level really mean. No, there's
1: no interpretation half the time for these new drugs, is there? So how low do you go?
0: And you might not even be quantifying all the drugs. I mean, if you're doing a urine screen, you're not necessarily quantifying every drug in there, especially all these new NPS and things like that.
1: So you might base your detection limit on the capability of your instrumentation. You don't want to set it too low because you may not always be able to get to that concentration. So you set it at a level where you can reliably detect it and identify it. But that may not even be a significant concentration for that drug.
0: Yeah, you might end up reporting a drug which is just a result of a dose someone took several days ago. Like if you're detecting... Cathinones in urine, for example. If you set your limit of reporting based on your method capability, which, if you're using a modern instrument, it's going to be very sensitive yes. for those drugs.
1: It can be down to sub microgram.
0: Yeah, but that's probably not relevant to the incident. Whatever happened, you know, whatever the reason is for the test. That tiny level is probably not relevant to that incident unless it happened a week ago. But
1: so who makes that decision? Is that up? You can't ask your customer what level do you think we should go down to. It's always going to be up to the toxicologist. And is that really our job?
0: Well, I think it has to be our job. I mean, as you say, no one else is going to do that for us. But it's just a very difficult job because we we like to base our cutoffs on the evidence. But there it just isn't enough evidence for some drugs to base it on interpretation so how do you draw that line? Maybe you can't until we get more information on these drugs.
1: Yeah, and so if in your jurisdiction there's a, a penalty for having this drug in your system, then the laboratory is actually determining at what level a person can be prosecuted at just by determining what the detection limit is. Yeah, that's right. That's a big responsibility.
0: Well, what about items like syringes or, you know, let's say uh, there's a scene of a death and they find some items at the scene, maybe a used syringe or something like that. They bring it in for toxicology testing. And if it's a heroin death, you might detect heroin in the syringe. You probably are going to. But if it's used, you may also get a little bit of back flushing. And if they had drugs already in their blood, they're now in the syringe. So you find trace levels of some antidepressants or antipsychotics or or whatever, other illicit drugs.
1: I'm unsure about what other laboratories do, but People don't tend to report things as trace concentrations now, do they? I mean, that's, that's some informative information to be given to your customer. So if you find a humongous heroin peak and you find a tiny antidepressant peak or something like that, if you just write in your report that detected in the sample were heroin and this antidepressant, then they may think there's a combination thing going on there. That They might think that the antidepressant's a significant drug, when really, in fact, it's probably just the backflush from the person's own blood.
0: So, it's tricky to find ways to report these very tiny concentrations that we might find in a way that conveys the weight of that to the client.
1: Yeah, you don't want to, it's important to report everything that you find, but you don't want to start misleading them. I'd be interested to see what other jurisdictions do about that.
0: Well, I don't know. You say it's important to report everything you find. Maybe some people would choose not to report those very small ones. Mm. Like in that syringe example, maybe people would just report the the highest concentration drug they found or the highest few or...
1: Yeah, I think then you come into... People might start considering that's a little bit of a bias type thing. Why would you report this drug and not that drug? And
0: Yeah, unless would... you've got a policy in your lab about in these types of cases, we report the top, the highest drug that we found. Because, I mean, mainly in that example, mainly what you're trying to do is link it to the person. If, if someone's died, presumably you're going to find that drug in their system. You're trying to link this particular syringe to the death somehow... Yeah. So maybe those other things aren't even particularly relevant.
1: So you might, re- might not want to report the antidepressant, but what about a low-level opiate that's there? So you might not report like a trace level of venlafaxine, but you may report thebane because that's related to the opium or the heroin. But some people might be reluctant not to report everything because then that may be considered a toxicologist demonstrating some sort of bias or I don't know.
0: I mean, that's quite a niche example Um, We don't want to go on too much of a tangent about that, but Mm. it just in principle is very tricky to work out how to report these very tiny concentrations. And of course, one of the other problems from a qualitative point of view is the contamination issue. So if you've got a lot of samples in a batch and if you're doing, say, an oral fluid analysis, you may have some samples in there which are really high Mm. in concentration for a particular drug and some which are negative, but because your cutoff is quite low... It doesn't take a lot of contamination from one sample to another to give a positive result. You've got that really high one. You only need a tiniest little drop, yeah.
1: So the concentrations can be 20,000 nanograms per mil or something like that in oral fluid. And then you're going down to 10 nanograms per mil. It only takes a few microliters.
0: Yeah, which, I mean, obviously good laboratory practice is the um, thing that can prevent that kind of contamination. So you need clean laboratory practices and making sure that you're keeping things separate and all that kind of stuff. But I think because we have become so sensitive in toxicology now, we should really think of our that potential for contamination as being similar to what it is in DNA work. You know, DNA scientists are so cautious of contaminating one sample to another because you only need the tiniest amount. But it's really the an equivalent amount that you need in toxicology as well.
1: But that's really because in DNA work, they're amplifying a trace contamination and it can be amplified up. But we don't really have that in toxicology, but I guess we do concentrate stuff a fair bit, don't we? So, we do. Yeah, and then we sort of you know
0: adjust our instrument sensitivity to maximise the signal for particular ions and things like that. So I think it's obviously very different to DNA in terms of the techniques we're using. But I think the potential for contamination is pretty equivalent, I would say. Mm. We should keep that in mind every time we're in the lab making sure we're having clean laboratory practices, keeping samples separate, just general lab cleanliness because obviously we are using drug stock solutions and things like that in the laboratory. Yeah,
1: and this day and age, we don't reuse any glassware if we can. It doesn't sound very environmentally friendly, but it's just not good practice to reuse any glassware that you've got in your lab.
0: Yeah, I think on that environmental issue, I think maybe we can make a distinction between when we're doing casework and when we're doing research, method development, stuff like that because I think we should try and be environmentally friendly where we can reuse things. But the potential for contamination in a case sample is just too great to reuse things like that. That's right.
1: So you reckon we should be putting validation guidelines in for contamination issues?
0: Well, validation guidelines do talk about carryover on instruments. So you, you run a really high concentration and then you run a blank afterwards and check if there's any carryover. And that's one potential source of contamination. So that's good to be doing that. But- Contamination during the sampling or the extraction, maybe that should be evaluated too. How would you do it? I guess you just have to have a really high sample or a couple of samples in a batch with a lot of blank samples, and just see if any of the blank samples turn up positive at very low levels.
1: So if you did a batch of samples, for example, and you had them all in singlicate, just all, what is it? Is it singlet?
0: What is what is singlicate? I think singlicate is a word, but actually, I don't know if it's in the dictionary. No. Single, maybe.
1: If you only analyse your samples in single, then you'll never know if that sample's been contaminated. If you do a repeat example, repeat analysis, and it's negative, then you say, "Oh, something's going on here." Or if they're next to it, if you've got two in duplicate within a run, if the results are different, then you know maybe something's happened. But
0: well, I, I guess some labs might have the illicit drugs lab and the toxicology labs, you know, close together in proximity, yeah. or maybe even the same lab in some places. Well,
1: they use the same instrumentation, don't they?
0: Yeah. It does seem very logical in one sense to combine them. It's the, everyone's chemists. I reckon using an, the same accountant, instruments.
1: an accountant would say, yeah, why not just use the same lab?
0: Yeah, sure. But I mean, obviously the kind of concentrations that illicit drug labs are dealing with are massive compared mm. to what toxicologists deal with. Or well, sometimes if you're doing a lot of different types of matrices in your lab, you might even want to separate out some of these assays where they're super sensitive, you know, you're going really low, something like hair, maybe, from other assays where you're dealing with larger concentrations just because of the matrix type.
1: Yeah. Or even where you're making up your standards and weighing out your materials, you wouldn't use that. Well, I guess a good practice would be not to use the same balance that you weigh out your cocaine on to use that same balance to weigh out hair.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've got to, we've got to be practical as well because it just it depends what you've got available to you in your laboratory. But there's there's obviously an ideal situation that we should all try and strive for. Whether we can all get to that or not, you know, we do the best we can. And then, of course, when you come to quantify the drugs, you face a lot of issues there with the sensitivity of our instruments because our instruments are now designed to be so sensitive. I mean, LCMS is the main. Instrument that gets used, other instruments get used as well. But LCMS is becoming the sort of gold standard of analysis, I guess, just because it can analyse so many things at once.
1: But it's terrible, isn't
0: it? Well, it's probably the worst in terms of its <laughs> linear dynamic range, mm. which is a real problem.
1: So, what what are these instrument? What happens when they have a more sensitive instrument? Does it still have the same dynamic range? So, say the the maximum point on your curve is one milligram per litre, let's say, and the minimum used to be 0.01.
0: So a hundred times. Yeah. So active. if you get a
1: more sensitive instrument, I don't think that one mig per litre is maintained. I think they just go below that 0.01. So what you end up having to do is, is diluting your extract. It doesn't improve the linearity if an instrument gets more sensitive, I don't think. Well, Not that I've bought hundreds of instruments, but I'm yeah, just, I, just trying to work that I out. I think
0: manufacturers would say that they are increasing the range. But, of course, I think those are only very small increases compared to what we need. The increases to be yeah. so, that's not really solving the problem for us right now. Which is why people are coming up with a lot of different creative solutions on how to extend the linear range in a LCMS through sort of tricky kind of techniques. I mean, I mean they're valid. I'm not saying they're not valid, but they're they're very creative
1: and they're necessary. Yeah.
0: yeah, and of course the problem with having saturation in your instruments is that the curves go non-linear at a certain point. Maybe they're linear to start off with, and then they go non-linear.
1: I think. It's quite valid to use a, linea- a non-linear curve as long as it's validated over the linear range. I think, uh, I don't know. I should have a look at the guidelines before I start recording a podcast, Tim, but maybe we <laughs> Do you have to look at more c- more points along that curve to make sure that you've got a good model and that it doesn't change over time? I mean, I think that's- if you can't even explain why something's not linear, then how do you gauge how your instrument's doing it?
0: Yeah, for me, the concerning thing about using a non-linear curve. Yes, you can validate it and everything, but the response of the instrument changes over time. It's it's not just that it could change, it definitely will change over time. As your detector deteriorates, for example, your response will get less. You know, there's things you got to replace every now and then on an LCMS because they just don't work as well. It's like, it's like anything, it's a piece of equipment and it
1: really gets dirty and that sort of thing.
0: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so your sensitivity will change over time and so that obviously affects your method performance at both ends. It affects the sensitivity at the low end, and it affects the linearity at the high end. And so if you're using a nonlinear curve, you've got to be very careful about how you're monitoring that linearity up at the top end.
1: You can always see where it you – know, I guess it's not truly a linear part of your curve, but you can see where it starts to go. The linear turns into a quadratic curve. It's more quadratic than it is in linear characteristic after a certain point. And there's got to be more error in there, doesn't there? You'd think as the curve's getting flatter, I mean, your sensitivity to any change in concentration is getting less, isn't
0: it? Yeah, well, so one thing you might do for quantitation is if you're doing a triple-quad method, you've got a couple of transitions in there, which you're using for your qualifier as well as your quant ion. You might not set the quant iron at the highest response peak just so that you can lower that level of saturation there.
1: Or you could detune it so that either there's there's lots of different manufacturers and different ways to do it, but declustering potential can be reduced in some instruments and schema plate voltage, that sort of thing, can be changed so that you can desensitise your analyte
0: a bit. Yeah, so if you're analysing something like methamphetamine and fentanyl in the same assay, yeah. you'll reduce the sensitivity of meth on purpose, but then you'll try and max out the fentanyl as much as you can because it's the same extract that you're injecting. And so one of the problems, though, that comes about with having a smaller peak as your target ion or quant ion, is that then your qualifier ion or ions might actually be higher than the target peak mm. in terms of their response, which isn't an issue really in principle, except that when you're looking at you know what windows of response you should get for those qualifiers, something like the NIST guidelines, for example, say that if it's between 50% and 100% of the highest iron, then it should be have this kind of window. If it's within 20 and 50%, it should have this window. I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head. but
1: So what are you saying? Now, because your quantifier iron is lower abundance than your qualifier iron, you're yeah, going so to have that's... ratios of 150 or 200.
0: Exactly. You know, the um, GTFCH guidelines, for example, they allow for the possibility that you might use a lower peak for your quant iron, but then I think they say you should still... Get those ratios from the highest iron, whatever that is. It might not be your quant iron.
1: Right. So your ratio is actually your uh, quantifier divided by your qualifier.
0: Because one of the problems is that software is set up usually to use the quant iron as the one that you're getting the ratios from. And so trying to do it the other way around uh, is a little tricky. I mean, you could do it. I'm sure there's ways of doing it.
1: So what about isotope peaks then? So often on a triple quad, you don't even think about these things because you're only usually talking about your M plus H ion getting isolated and fragmented, but you can actually isolate the M plus H plus 1 ion, which is predominantly uh, molecules that have got a carbon 13 in them. And that's, what's carbon 13? 1% of carbon in the world? It's, it's a low percentage, but because you have so many carbons, the probability of any one molecule having a carbon 13 on it is increased as soon as you have a large number of carbons.
0: Yeah, so that kind of thing is very easy to do on a full scan mass spec, you know, like a QTOF. Yeah, if you're quanting
1: on the M plus H, yeah.
0: Yeah, because you've already got those ions there. You're acquiring everything anyway, so it's very easy to go to the M plus H plus one. On a triple chord, you'd obviously have to actually set that up in your method to start with, but that can be a very effective way of reducing it because it's the same compound. It's just uh, got an isotopic carbon in there. Yeah, and
1: because they have no effect whatsoever on the, the molecule's performance or behaviour in the method because it's on the carbon-13 nucleus. It's not on a, a proton or anything.
0: Yeah, well, you would you would think so. I don't know how much study's been done on that, but you would think it wouldn't have as much effect.
1: Well, they have the same retention time, don't they? Carbon-13 analogues?
0: Yes, but... You told me they did once. No, yeah, no, they do, but... <laughs> I don't know. Like, if, if you really zoomed in on it, like you know, are, are they exa- behaving exactly the same? I don't mean zoom in on the chromatogram. I mean, like, if you if you could zoom in so far, maybe they're not behaving exactly the same way, or in the mass spectrometer as well. But I don't know. They, that isotope is on the internal part of the molecule, as you say. So presumably, it's not affecting things like solubility and things like that, which may have mm-hmm. an effect in the you know the ionization process. Yep. So you can have multiple drugs in an assay and you can have some using the isotope iron for quanting and you can have some just using the uh, probably the lower dose ones just using the C12 isotope for quanting. It has even been proposed or even people I think have used the M plus H plus 2 iron, which you're going down one more level again. Mm. Um, So the probability of those atoms having two carbon-13s in them is even less of those molecules, I mean.
1: And you're also talking about other isotopes of other atoms as well
0: well i mean you could one one thing you could do is do multiple injections and have you know different method parameters and so on for the for the low dose ones and the high dose ones
1: i'm surprised how low some auto samples can go like 0.1 microliter injections it can be quite consistent I mean, or even lower than that we've i've tried on occasion to see what happens but so you can really reduce your injection volume a lot and that doesn't mean a re-extraction or a dilution step that's a quite a good way to do it.
0: Yeah, but it still uses a lot more instrument time. than Ideally, you want to try and get all this happening in the one injection. Well, that brings up another um, interesting technique, which sometimes people might use for this, is re-injecting extracts at a lower volume. So let's say you've got, maybe you've got a linear calibration curve between 10 and 1,000 nanograms per mil, let's just say. If you get a sample that comes out at 2,000 nanograms per mil, that's above your validated calibration range. It's obviously above the response range that you've established is linear on your instrument. Is it valid to reinject that at a lower volume? You know, as you were saying before, you can, we can inject really low volumes on our instruments. So if, you, if you've got a standard two microliter injection, can you inject half a microliter of that, brings it back within the response range of the calibration curve. It's obviously not within the concentration range.
1: Yeah, so the the difficulty there is a lot of the guidelines say your concentration has to be within the validated range, and your validated range is usually in terms of you know nanograms per mill or whatever. It's not in terms of area response. So even though you dilute it 100 times or whatever, concentration is still going to be the same because you'll be measuring it to the internal standard that you've got in there.
0: It will. But is that just because the guidelines, as we were mentioning before about the you know triple quad qualifiers, have the guidelines just not caught up with modern practices of forensic toxicologists that they're using to try and extend that range? Or is it really not a valid thing to do and people shouldn't be doing it?
1: Yeah. Well, you, you do your validation over your concentration range. You don't do it over your instrument response range, do you?
0: No. Yeah. I, I totally see what you're saying. But then just thinking about the principle of it, What's wrong with the principle of it? Are uh, you, You're just bringing it back within the response range, which you know is the problem. It's unlikely to be there's there's a difference in the extraction from you know 1,000 nanograms per mil to 2,000 nanograms per mil. You're not going to saturate your extraction, yeah. most likely. I mean, I guess it's a possibility. And so the thing that is causing the problem is the instrument response. If you can bring it back within that instrument response, is it valid? I don't know. I don't know.
1: Mm, I don't know either. I do know that some laboratories in other fields, pesticides fields, for example, do do that dilution, but they actually add internal standard to keep it proportionate to the calibration range.
0: Yeah, because that's the problem, isn't it? You're yeah. you're injecting your internal standard at a lower volume as well, and so you'll you might get to the point where your internal standard peak is just not a very good peak anymore. Yeah, it's not very reliable. So.
1: Can you do anything you want as long as you validate it and show that it's correct?
0: Yeah, I really don't know. I, I feel like you
1: can because, you know, you're, <laughs> you're a reasonably good person at what you do. Thanks, Pete. Don't no,
0: <laughs> <laughs> talk about you. Well, yeah, I, part of me thinks, yes, you can, as long as you validate it. You can basically do, you know, anything you like. As, I guess you have to comply with sort of the broad, you know, guidelines that are out there. But,
1: but they say you can't do it.
0: Well, they don't say you can't do it. Well, they just okay. don't mention it. But then, part of me is like, oh, I don't know. But I mean, any new techniques. This is this is like it is in any scientific field. Anyone who's sort of on the cutting edge, they're they're a trailblazer in their field. They start off by doing things that other people don't know a lot about, and are like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And I guess they're hoping that you know, given enough research time and stuff, they'll establish. Yep, it works really well. Eventually. Everyone else will follow along behind them and, you know, they'll be out in front winning the Nobel Prize and that'll become an accepted way of doing things in that field. Mm. But of course, the problem is that you also get trailblazers going off in all sorts of directions in science and (laughs) not all of them work out. So (laughs) how do you know when you're at that cutting edge whether something is actually going to work out or not? I, I don't know. Yeah. But if you can validate it, I guess you can defend it in court. You know, if you can show that it works, then- I don't think you can really be criticised that much.
1: Yeah. It also depends on the application. I mean, if if you're talking about a legislated concentration, then it's going to be different to whether you're just giving an estimate of whether it's a high concentration or a low concentration.
0: Well, I mean, dilution of samples, though, is pretty well established now, isn't it? Like if you... okay, we've got the same situation. A curve goes up to 1,000 nanograms per mil. You get a sample at 2,000. You can re-extract that sample using a lower volume maybe use half or probably even you know, use a fifth or something to make sure it's within the range of that curve, top it up with some blank matrix. Usually people yeah. would do that. If you can validate that, that's pretty well accepted to do it like that.
1: Or even without adding the matrix. So sure. They call that uh, dilution integrity. In the, uh, up until some point you won't need to add any extra blank blood or whatever yeah. to get the extraction to work the same.
0: So how is that different then? Is that any different? You're, it, let's say you don't add any blank matrix. You're extracting that through. You've got less matrix in there, obviously, in your extract, I mean, less matrix compounds. Well, isn't that exactly the same as re-injecting a lower volume, assuming your injection volume is stable and precise at that volume?
1: Yeah, but you've validated it in that calibration curve range.
0: Yeah, I get, so that's what it comes back to, is that I think so, limits yeah. of quantitation are always talked about in terms of concentration, never in terms of instrument response, because you can't talk about them in that, those terms. Well,
1: they... Do they talk about it in concentration. Yeah, I guess they do.
0: So, what about if you get the opposite situation then, Pete? Like, let's say you've got an extraction. Maybe your recovery is, you know, seventy percent for a particular drug, but in in a particular sample, you just get a better re- extraction recovery. It doesn't happen. <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> so now that you now your concentration in that sample is within the calibration range, but the response on the instrument is actually higher than your top calibrator.
1: So this might be one of those dodgy drugs that in a large suite of drugs that you're analysing which didn't quite perform as well or something, you mean?
0: Yeah, something that's got a bit of an erratic recovery.
1: And so in one particular sample, it extracts very well for some
0: reason. Yeah, and so then you've got a greater instrument response, but it's still within your concentration range. There's nothing that covers that So in your calibration
1: curve, your top calibrator had an area of 1 million, but this one's got an area of... Three million, is that what you mean?
0: Yeah well, it, that's Maybe an that's, extreme example, okay,
1: but 1.5. Yeah. yeah. What, what is the limit? Is there a limit?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we're, we're sort of, as a field, we're being forced to come up with a lot of creative solutions for how to do this. The ideal thing would be to have instruments which don't have this problem, obviously, where you can analy- you can get very good dose response across you know a wide, wide range. Like a GCMS. I mean, that's what you have on a GCMS. So maybe the solution is to quant everything on GCMS.
1: We shouldn't think that LCMSs are the only instruments that ever had this sort of trouble. I mean, electron capture detectors and NPDs had this problem, but they always seem to to have a wider uh, linear range than we seem to be finding on these instruments.
0: Yeah, so I guess technological advances are something that's needed. But in the meantime, and I mean, who knows if that'll ever even really get to the point where this is never a problem. This is probably always going to be a problem because as technology advances, new drugs are coming out, which are more potent as well. So it's continually, you know, they're, they're both advancing at the same time.
1: So have we decided whether we're too sensitive or not? I think we've validated that instruments can be too sensitive, but we've got ways of working around
0: it. Yeah, I don't think we could ever really say that we're too sensitive. We have to be sensitive to detect the things that we need to detect.
1: Instruments are getting so sensitive now that you can analyse a single strand of hair for drugs. I mean... You need that sort of sensitivity at the cutting edge.
0: Yeah, that's right. Or it's it's
1: analyze fifty microliters of blood instead of the regular five hundred.
0: Yeah. I think you want to get I think you want to be as sensitive as you possibly can. Yes, for sure. And then just find ways to deal with these issues creatively. That that would be my preference. But of course it depends on the kind of work you're doing. You know. Not everyone is looking for a huge range of drugs in one test and not everyone is doing analyses on these particular matrices that we're talking about where they have really wide concentrations. So enough waffling? Well, let us know what you think. Email us at toxpod at tf.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TIAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tiaft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.